This is the Cover 2 Podcast with Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Brady on the deep drop, stands in, fires down the middle for Gronkowski, makes the grab at the 45, spinning away from defenders. He's gone to the 20, to the 10, to the 5, to the end zone. The Cover 2 Podcast on Patriots.com. The play fake and the throw to the end zone for Antonio Brown. Touchdown, Pittsburgh. Nobody covers the NFL like the guys from Cover 2. Eight different receivers have caught a pass from Matt Ryan today. He's looking to throw again. Wide open, Julio Jones has it. And in the end zone, touchdown, Falcons. Now, Don Banks and Nick Stevens. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Cover 2 Podcast with Banks and Stevens. I'm Don Banks, joined by my co-host Nick Stevens. Nick, opening day came and went yesterday, and I will say this. I've been battling a little bit of stomach flu the last two days, and had I been healthy, I believe that Red Sox opener would have basically produced the same results as the stomach flu. Oh, no! We suck again! Welcome back, Don. I hope you like unbearable losses and piles of hot take reactions. What <laughs> you, a welcome back party we planned for you, huh? You know, you know you're sick when the Red Sox can blow a game like that uh, for nothing going into the bottom of the eighth. And you're actually happy that you're sick to distract you from the pain of what the Red Sox did. couple quick stats. These are my favorites. They didn't blow a lead bigger than three runs all last year. Nope. They've topped that. Mm-hmm. I saw where the Rays have not won a game where they were trailing by four runs in 70-some attempts. And this is my little quirky, the way my mind works. This is the second consecutive game the Red Sox have hit an inside-the-park home run, and they've lost both. Right. Because you remember Devers in the final game of the playoffs, a game I was at, game four in Fenway. So there's something to that. I think it's kind of hard to lose a game when you hit a— Inside the park home run, probably, but um, it was uh, it was a spectacular flame out in Alex Gore's debut. I really, really was impressed by the Red Sox yesterday. It was about as Red Sox a loss. Yeah, I understand twenty first century, ten parades, three World Series, blah blah blah. That's vintage Sox right there. Yeah. Alex Cora f- looks great in a Red Sox uniform <laughs> because he was able to manage like a true. Sox skipper yesterday. I'm of the sure it's only one game into the season, but let me try to even put like look at this through uh, rose-colored football glasses. I'll look at this like the 2003 opener for the Patriots when they go up to Buffalo and lose 31 nothing. It's also they they were able to turn that around. There's way too much talent in this team. It's one out of 162. Didn't help. Didn't (laughs) help much. That meanwhile in Toronto, the arch enemy. Leads off with uh, five RBI, three runs scored, and two home runs for Stanton. And a double. Oh, and a double, too. He he literally hit a home run on, the, on his first swing of the season. First, Well, the first swing by a human to the 2018 season was Ian Happ, which was a home run. That's like Punxsutawney Phil. And I believe the last time that happened was 86 with Dwight, Dwight Evans, Evans doing in, it in the Detroit. old Tiger Stadium. Yeah, which is kind of cool. There were so many of those type of moments. Um, Un- unbelievable. So yeah. Th- for the Sox to lose and for Stanton <laughs> to just like salt and lemon the wound and then kick you over in the chair you're they tied They couldn't to. give us one day. Nope. One day without drawing the juxtaposition Ooh. as starkly as possible. And all the social media of like, Stanton's got two home runs, J.D. Martinez has none. <laughs> 
Come on, let's and on guys. pace for it's there were a lot not... of great on pace for uh, <laughs> stats. Anything I I muted the words on pace for yeah. yesterday on Twitter. Uh, Don, it's not even April yet. That's true. That's where this comes back to bite us. Not only like, not only like, is this the first game? It's not even April yet. I um, Denard Span, Kiermaier. I mean, that's a pretty weak lineup to give up six in the eighth too. Here's here's the thing. I mean, I'm I'm all aboard with Alex Cora, and I do think this is going to be a fun team to watch. I think I'm going to like this team. Um, but again, I saw an offense that kind of missed some opportunities, and then I saw the bullpen, which has really not gotten enough attention. Uh, be that problem in the eighth inning. I would have gone, frankly, Carson Smith to start the inning, not Joe Kelly. There's a lot of decisions to come. Um, but, man, talk about win 14 out of the last 15 in spring training. Not that that matters, <laughs> but it still created this mojo and this good vibe. And then walking face plant into the wall. At May the I trough. remind you who was pit- my least favorite moment of the Red Sox, 21st, 20, uh, second decade of the century edition is when they actually clinched the AL East in 2016. Oh. And who served up that salami at Joe, the end of the game? Joe Kelly. To Teixeira? Yeah. In his Joe final Kelly. significant at-bat of his career? Joe Kelly. With two outs. I was done with him then. Two outs. I was done with him then. I don't need him now. Yeah, it was a... Uh, so, on on to Friday. On to Friday night's game. We're coming to you. We're on to, to game you. two. We're coming to you on a Friday, which is a little Screw unusual. Screw the Sox. Let's talk some football. But I did. I just got back on uh, Wednesday evening from Orlando, where I spent four days covering the NFL's annual meeting. And I'll, I've covered a ton of these owners' meetings over the years. This one was kind of eventful. Um, not not in ways that we expected, um, but in ways uh, that we didn't see coming, like Bill Belichick calling a near-unprecedented uh, press conference to talk to the Boston local media when he didn't have to. Uh, that was the way it started on Belichick Sunday. Belichick made a lot of waves, actually, was down there. He called that early local he, early local media one on Sunday, then went into vintage Belichick forum with <laughs> lot, dismissive answers aplenty later on. Right. Then he wore that uh, million-dollar uh, blazer when he stood against the wall. Didn't give us the orange juice picture made famous by formerly of the Herald and now of the Athletic, uh, Jeff Howe. He didn't give us the orange juice picture. He gave us the gangster pose against the back wall at the breakfast, which was awesome. And then he sort of set up shop in Dolphins headquarters at one point, too. It was absolutely uh, Making zany. waves. It was zany. Yeah, I thought it was so perfect because all the other coaches sit at tables, and as he has done. You remember the shove the recorders away from him uh, look from a couple years ago. But when I look up at one point at the breakfast uh, Tuesday morning— he, there he is in the corner, and everybody else is seated. He is over in the corner with the, the media surrounding him, and I thought, that's perfect. You know, the rules aren't exactly the same for him uh, as they are for everybody else. But it was, it was, um, it was an interesting meeting, um, not only because, you know, we, we went in thinking the catch rule was going to dominate. It was actually a, a fait accompli, anticlimactic. It was, you know, we had hashed it out the week before, when the news kind of broke of what it was going to look like, what it was going to um, feel like. So, naturally, the NFL, in one of the most unprecedented moves, slipped us another major significant rule modification in the helmet hit rule. And, look, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff to unpack on this rule. And I've written about it twice already, once for Patriots.com, once for The Athletic. In general... 
this was supposed to be a, a point of clarification or a point of emphasis for offici- the officiating crew. It was not supposed to be a r- rules proposal. It was met with such support by the coaching fraternity, apparently, at the meeting. I believe also the doctor and perhaps the uh, uh, lawyer uh, contingent as well that works for the league that suddenly they Tuesday afternoon, kind of out of the blue, they put it together as a rules proposal and voted on it. Voila, uh, we have just gone from, you know, the soup to the frying pan. We just had one very subjective rule kind of cleared up and simplified. Now we have another one. And in all honesty, I've been telling people withhold judgment because no one really knows, even the league, how this thing is going to work, how far it's going to extend, what's going to trigger ejections. We just There's so much about this we don't know. I'd like to revisit the revised catch rule, which we've previously addressed because there was some news about it this week uh, involving a certain <laughs> game a couple weeks ago that I think uh, this particular audience would like to discuss. But on the lowering your helmet, lowering the hat rule. I've seen, I've, I follow a good number of former players that are analysts in the media, a lot of the same beat guys you do. Um, I saw you retweeted something, uh, Aaron, it was Aaron Nagler who said earlier this week, like, it's going to be a mess. This is going to be a mess. And you wrote, you uh, quote tweet, preach brother Nagler. It is going to be a mess. But I think this needs to be a mess before we get to a, a nice clean aisle or a level playing field. Because too many times I, I, I've heard from too many people in the league, outside the league, fans of and now former viewers of the NFL who say that poor form is the leading cause right. of a lot of the dist- the distress, the injuries, and the head trauma. Now, the people saying, like, well, now what's a running back going to be able to do? How do people approach each other at the offensive line? Are you telling me when you make a tackle you can't lower your head? There's so much incidental spearing, poor form executed on every single play. Look, I'm not, I'm not a player. I didn't even stay at a Holiday Inn Express last night. I'm not one to comment on this. I get it. But I hate watching football. During the middle of last season, we railed and ranted against that Steelers-Bengals game, oddly enough, the highest-rated Monday Night Football game of 2017, which was just a helmet-on-helmet collision-a-thon. Right. It was brutal. That's not good football, and it's not the kind of football people are going to continue to watch. As a matter of fact, it's probably going to be what leads to the game losing viewership, losing players, and losing popularity for decades to come. I applaud them. It's a risky move. I love it. I I believe the league's, you know, heart is in the right place on this. They know they have to get that play out of the game. And let's be honest, the Ryan Shazier injury, the spinal cord injury, very severe, is kind of the poster uh, child play for this rule. He, I was talking to Rich McKay, the competition committee chairman, he said there were actually three or four times Shazier has used his helmet very similar to that. Finally, on that one ill-fated play, he he did great damage to his own spinal cord and is still recovering from it. That's the play they feel like they have to get out of the game, and I and I agree. I think that's they're honor bound to do that. They're they're wise to do that. Here's where I have a problem with trying to do it quickly. You create a lot of confusion. You don't build the factions of support that you need. Um, far better to in my point of view, had they wanted to do this, was to start beating the drum for doing it weeks and weeks ago. It's so ironic to me that they kind of, they went all out once the commissioner said we want to clean up the catch rule in telling people what they wanted to do, how they wanted to do it, showing them examples of what what wouldn't disqualify catch any longer and what would still be a good catch. And then here they are in this case, 
you know, kind of putting this thing together over, you know, over lunch and, and running it out there before people really understood what it entails. And the education is everything here. Um, speaking to Joe Banner yesterday for the Q&A I do with him each week for The, the Athletic, you know, he said, do you remember Paul Tagliabue played arbiter when he rolled back the commissioner's penalties on the Saints Bounty Gate episode? He wrote basically a ruling that said the league doesn't serve itself well when it acts so hastily that it can't build consensus behind a sudden change. It can't build education. It has to just run out there, do something, and then realize that the support isn't behind it. I really feel like they they forgot that lesson. And in this case, how they get there is going to be awkward. Where they're trying to go is probably advantageous. Correct. And, Couldn't agree with that more. Um so now you've got, you know, your usual social media firestorm of players saying they're ruining the game. I will remind you, five years ago, I remember we were in Phoenix at that owner's meeting. They, they passed the crown of the helmet rule. And Emmett Smith on down said they're going to change the running game in the NFL as we know it. They're going to ruin it. Um, they didn't, either because it wasn't called that often or it wasn't practiced that often anymore. I don't know which. But so I would just say let's all take a breath and see how the league goes about this. Rich McKay told me clearly this is going to be a play that's much easier to officiate in space between two players out in the open. The tackle box, it's going to be very difficult to ask the game officials to keep an eye on helmet-to-helmet contact uh, unless it's like a running back plowing through a hole with his he- with his helmet down. Now, which happens far too often as well. Listen, I understand there's like the fight for hard yards and who made contact first and was it incidental versus on purpose. Open space makes tons of sense. What are they going to name the penalty, I wonder, and what do you think that they'll probably officiate it at? Uh, think I it'll be a 10-yarder? I, I mean, I— or it'll be a personal foul. It, it's going to be a 15-yarder. They they said that. Um, the part is, and this again, this gets back to them not figuring out everything beforehand. They're not sure yet um, what is going to trigger an ejection. So how egregious, how flagrant does it have to be to trigger a, a game ejection, which is obviously pretty severe, and they're going to have to educate the players on that. Um, secondly, although... The league has never used replay review for a player safety rule and never used it to look at a a foul call. They're going to do that this time, but they haven't added that to the rule yet either. But they're going to have to add a replay component because with the game ejection, there's such a severe downside. Um, And they're making a point to say this isn't a targeting rule. It might have the effect of a targeting rule without calling it a targeting rule. College uses the replay for injuries and penalties, right. and I think they may have to in the NFL. Yet at the same time, last week you've got people like the aforementioned Bill Belichick saying how he's drastically not in favor of enhanced or further video replay use in the NFL, among many other things. So, I don't know. They're, uh, it is, it's confusing from 10,000 feet right now, but uh, I, I think it's going to work itself out. Look... It's been messy for the last couple of years anyway. People have been complaining about the poor play, the poor, the quality of the gameplay. So, if anything, you may have to just make it a little messier before you finally clean it up and we get an enhanced, cleaner, safer game. Yeah, I mean, again, I think um, the league probably has the right thought here 
and it's a matter of how they do the rollout. And, and the rollout was not – it was not exactly done with precision at mm-hmm. this meeting because um, it was almost like, look over here, look over here, catch rule, catch rule, and they slipped in the old helmet hit rule. Uh, really, when it felt like um, – we thought we knew everything that was going to be on the agenda. The old, oh, the coaches are playing golf today. Let's uh, let's pass this new rule, that type of thing. In this case, the coaches seem to be very much behind it. And it's so much on the coaches um, and ownership to say, you know, this is the new reality, but let's all kind of take a breath and not try to make a, uh, a judgment in late March. Let's see how this thing rolls out. You, you made reference to the um, – Al revisionist history Riveron uh, moment from that owners meeting. That was also interesting. Um, if by interesting you mean infuriating, yes. <laughs> there was a certain amount of reporting, and you know Chris Mortensen said this, I believe, last week on our podcast. You mm-hmm. know that he believes firmly that this catch rule standard was in force in the Super Bowl, and that clearly someone in the league um, suggested to Al Riveron, the director of officials, that we need to lighten up on the stringent, strict um, interpretation of the catch rule. Voila, Corey uh, Clement caught that ball. It's six points. So at the meeting, Riveron is asked in a press conference setting about, I believe, Sal Palantonio's report that, in essence, he acknowledged that there was a new standard. And he got up there and said, no, not at all. There's slight movement allowed in the rule all along, and we judged that, blah, blah, blah. Nobody was buying. The dog wouldn't hunt. Um, I was skeptical. A lot of people were skeptical. I get why you're not admitting that because it looks like you changed the standard uh, from the regular season. But our eyeballs told us that. That's why Chris Collinsworth almost fell out of the booth saying I give up because he knew what the standard had been. I, I tweeted out what Riveron said and then said Kelvin Benjamin could not be reached for comment because I really feel like there wasn't a, a drastic amount of difference between those two calls. There are two games that pa- Patriots won, one that they very well could have and should have gone on to win anyway, and one that they won based off of that particular interpretation of the catch rule. You've got the Jesse James surviving the ground and the aforementioned Kelvin Benjamin won in the Buffalo game on Christmas Eve. That the Patriots faced two similar plays in the Super Bowl, and they were called differently. No, no one is saying, no Pats fan is saying, oh, that's why we lost. Oh, I, you know, I you called sure chicanery. Are you well, sure about no, that? Well, no, it didn't help. It certainly <laughs> didn't help. It didn't I wouldn't help say no co- Pats fan. Well, okay, the no, majority. Lo- no logical, the majority of, no logical Pats fan is saying, oh, Nicely I done, get Kevin. it, that's why we lost. All right, I'll, I'll be heard, thank you, and then I'll leave this behind. <laughs> the, but come on. I don't want to dip too deep into the conspiracy bucket here, but at the same time, you got Troy Vincent sitting with Al Riveron, but you know, by the scale, by the button, if you will, during the Super Bowl, just be consistent. Are you telling me? You mean former are, Eagles are cornerback? You, uh, you mean Eagles Hall of Famer? You mean guy who's got? I don't a, follow you. A chip, a guy, a Troy Vincent, who's got a chip on his shoulder, who's got a hair across his, you know what, for Tom Brady and the Patriots, who want. Who authored the Deflate Gate suspension letter? And you're telling me that oh, they just conveniently happened to now start calling the catch rule differently. All I ask for is consistency. Yeah, I, look, I think I, I'm not going to get into you know who got screwed because I really believe. Look, the Patriots were on the fortuitous side of a lot of calls last season. So, and I'll say this: but the they more, were the correct. The calls. more I think about it, 
and the more we talk about it, the Zach Ertz touchdown, I believe he was a runner and established. That's a touchdown. That's I agree, a touchdown. 100. The other one, I disagree with. The other that. one, mm-hmm. by the standard they called all season long, should Correct. not that have was been not a touchdown. touchdown. No, it was absolutely so not a single person. Ta- thought it was. Take the take the component of you're either a Pats fan or a Pats hater and put it aside. I'm I'm neither of those. I will say this: it's a bad look when the standard was changed. You should at least acknowledge, hey. Um, Yes, we thought we had gone too far down one spectrum on that rule. They didn't do that. I'm not surprised. They don't like to acknowledge that. But it 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 did not, it did not uh, reflect well uh, when he stood up there. There was no there was no laughter, but there could have been because everybody in their mind was saying, "Yeah, right." And um, you know, I think I I think they want to <laughs> they want to get past it, whistle past the graveyard, and act like they've got it fixed now, and that's all that matters. And maybe so. I I. Again, I don't think the catch rule is a panacea. I do think it's going to fix a lot of the issues that we've had with the catch rule. And I, I think we're going to have far fewer of those moments next season as we had a string of them this year where we said, oh, here it is again, the catch rule. Maybe we can finally just leave it in the hands of the grown adults who are officiating and calling the game on the field. Fewer, fewer cooks, fewer chefs. They're trying. They said basically they they want to go back to indisputable and uh, and and if it if the refs call it a, a catch, it's really got to be obvious to overturn it. But we've heard that before. Mm-hmm. Another surprise uh, down in Orlando was the so-called Josh McDaniels rule. I wrote a column about this on Monday that said the league is basically poised to accept this because. Again, I had done some reporting. Rich McKay, the competition committee, who's very cautious, never goes out on a limb, said he thought it had a very good chance of passing. Everybody I talked to thought the same thing. It did not pass. And, in fact, I had a five-minute discussion with Chris Ballard, the Colts general manager, and they were against it. He feels as if the and right— they were the ones who got hosed in right. the first place. Or and at he least feels, felt wronged. He feels the right thing happened in the end— and that he did not want to change the rule because he feels like um, it's not right to ask a team to deal with that while they're in the playoffs. And he kind of basically believed that karma um, shined on Indianapolis anyway. I was I was surprised by that. I was surprised by how strong the coaches felt about it. I was told the ownership in the room was very ready to vote that uh, proposal in, uh, teams being allowed to hire coaches while a team is still alive and off the staff of a team that's still alive in the playoffs. It did not happen. It got tabled. And often in the NFL, tabled equals near dead. Yeah. It's, it seems unnecessary. It seemed reactionary. It seemed, yeah. it, it seemed completely reactionary to, a, uh, I don't know, a, a snare, if you will, or just a, a, a surprise reversal, a reversal of commitment by Josh McDaniels, who finally spoke this week with, Jim McBride at the Boston Globe and told his story. And in reading that story, I, you couldn't help but sort of glean from it like, ah, okay, so you just can't come out and say that it says that there's an agreement that says you can take over from Belichick. Because obviously that would be, well, that would just be a little, um, well, we'll say it would be uh, just outside the lines. Yeah. Uh, there's I, no need for that rule. I mean, that, that, I think see, that would I put disagree. some teams at a huge disadvantage, disagree, don't you think? I disagree. I you think, like it? I, well, yeah, and I... I did a story on this a couple years ago with Dan Quinn after he had gone through this situation um, leaving Seattle while they were in the midst of that 2014 Super Bowl run. 
mm-hmm. the one that ended well for your boys. Um, and he really thought that it had become a little archaic to kind of act wink, wink, nudge, nudge, nothing's really happening, um, and that you couldn't serve two masters for a very short amount of time and still be professional in both instances. Again, Kyle Shanahan then went through that um, this year. Um, that was the Josh McDaniel situation. I think it. I think it makes sense, and I think, frankly, in time, it, it probably will have it. Um, there was some reporting that Bill Belichick, uh, NFL Network, reported that that he made a passionate plea against it in the room. And again, I understand where coaches are coming from. But I think in some ways owners might have a better grasp on this because they're at the 30,000-foot level and they see for the league's sake it's not a good look when what happened happened this year. No. It's not at all. So it's it was an eventful uh, a few yeah. days in Orlando. These things sometimes um, end up much ado about little. Um, but in many ways, this one, this one had a lot of news to it. And a couple things I was able to do. Um, was bring home a couple interviews from the owners' meetings, the annual meeting. And the first one is going to be John Lynch, who um, this predates you ever so uh, slightly, Nick, but he was actually our first guest uh, when it was the uh, Cover 2 podcast with Banks and Price. John Lynch, the general manager of the San Francisco 49ers, was in a very different place when we last heard from him. Uh, you think? But I, I interviewed him on Tuesday in Orlando at the annual meeting, and we're going to hear from him now. From the NFL annual meeting in Orlando, and I'm joined now by, I think, our first guest on the Cover 2 podcast. Last spring, John Lynch, general manager of the 49ers. Uh, John, it was a different world. I'd like to say I've never seen a team like yours on quite the magic carpet ride. You're even winning coin flips when they (laughs) land on their side these days. Um, When we last spoke to you, it was an awful lot of blanks left unanswered you have filled in a remarkable number of them obviously headlined by um, the Jimmy Garoppolo acquisition Mm -hmm. I know you've talked this one to death but is he beyond your wildest expectations for walking in the door and being able to change um, the tenor of the situation for an entire team yeah he's he he was excellent in the time that he played for us he was tremendous I mean the, the trade was a big deal but there's a lot of unknown there a guy who hadn't played a whole lot of football and so really what Kyle and I were doing we, we saw a great opportunity but then the evaluation really began is this a guy we want being part of us because you're going to make such a substantial investment we knew that that position's key everybody knows that in this league and we felt like we had a chance because we knew of Jimmy's uh, talent and ability to throw the football like very few people in this world can. Um, but what we were most impressed with uh, was the way he went to work. He had to learn a complete new system uh, in weeks, and that's that's tough to do. Uh, Kyle throws a lot at our guys in terms of the verbiage, the quarterbacks in particular, but his diligence in going about that work. And I really applaud Kyle. I think a lot of coaches would have played him right away, even if he yeah, was ready. He that said, patience hey. was rare. Yeah, but that patience paid off. Uh, I would also say that as great as Jimmy was, and I, I think the best testament and, or the, the best compliment I could play him is that he made everybody on our team better, and that's the mark of a great player. Do you make people around you better? I would also say, though, at the same time, it coincided with we played a lot of young guys. You're going to take your lumps early, but then all of a sudden they started figuring out, hey, I belong in this. Here's, here's what my coaches want, and we also got healthy. So it kind of was a perfect storm of things. 
but there's no uh, underestimating Jimmy's impact on that, and that's why we felt uh, felt uh, real strongly about getting him locked up. And fortunately, he and his agent uh, were agreeable to do it in in uh, quick, timely fashion, so that we could go out and use that in free agency to attract players. How much were you, I guess, wary that a guy who's been in a winning environment, they might walk in and say, "I, I don't want to," you know, "I don't want to be with the team that's." struggled the last two three years he never seemed to bat an eye he he welcomed the challenge of being part of the answer there yeah he he did and i i really commend him for that um but i I would tell you i think a lot of that was the tone and tenor of our locker room i mean it was and, and i i've had trouble reconciling this because like you know people see when we won our first game and uh we were <laughs> one and nine or one and ten or whatever it was um it was like we won a Super Bowl, but that's because we had come close so much. And the thing Kyle and I kept saying, you know, it was kind of odd having a that that record, but yet a very happy right. uh, locker room. But the reason was is, you know, we felt like we could control a couple of things, the attitude and the effort of our players. And every day they came with a great attitude. Every day they, they came and displayed great effort. We knew that good things would start to happen. And then when it turned, we felt like it would turn in a big way. And so I think Jimmy felt that. And uh, he also became a big part of it. Bizarrely, it's like you had several years of experience jammed into one year. The 0-9 start, the <laughs> 6-1 finish, the quarterback. There's not a lot left that you can't experience on some way that you didn't taste a little bit of the, the ups and the downs of this, this game as a general manager. Well, that's the great thing, though, I learned when I, you know, I spent 15 years as a player, when I spent nine as a broadcaster. I think that's the allure of football. Is that yeah. Every year's different, and every yeah. team's different, and the experiences that you're going to experience uh, are different. And that's why you can only get it when you're, when you're in the game. And that's why I got back in. And, um, you know, the, the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory. That's what, you know, I think uh, propels us all, the fear of failure, all those things. Do you think you've ever had a season that had those two the highs extremes? And yeah. Um, because the way you started the season. Yeah, probably not. Kyle's got a great line. You know, how do you make a 6-10 and ten season great? You, you go 1-9 one, one and nine to start. You yeah. know? <laughs> and, and, uh, and closing hard was great. I think, you know, one experience, you were there for some of those years. Um, yeah. We closed hard in Tampa a number of times, and it, I think the biggest message that Kyle and I want to impart to our team is that it doesn't just carry over automatically. We've got to make it happen by the way we go about our work. You're not supposed to be able to pick up a Richard Sherman yeah. on the market in free agency. Yeah. Unique situation, obviously. Um, what tells you he's got a lot left in the tank? Well, that's the, that's the big question. You know, we, we, yes, we have secured Richard Sherman on our team, and yes, he'll be back. It's just how... How how uh, how well will he come back? Mm-hmm. And those injuries—that's the risk with it. But one thing I have learned in my career is that the, the the better players, the elite athletes, tend to recover a little faster and a little better. And uh, I think Richard feels the same. Um, everyone says way ahead of schedule and all that, but he is. And, you know, I've talked to our trainers, and he's already been there. He's working incredibly hard. We think he's going to come back, and you know. I think one one other thing I learned during free agency late in my career, a lot of teams would say, hey, we want to bring your leadership. And the one thing I would pose to them is you better still think I can play because I know how this league works. You better be able to play or guys aren't listening. There aren't any yeah. mascots. It's exactly. So <laughs> we get we get Richard first and foremost for what he's going to bring to us on the field. But we also believe there's added value in terms of 
what he's going to bring. We got a lot of good, talented young players, but they're all kind of quiet. And yeah. other than a, than a couple like Reuben Foster, uh, we think Richard can kind of pull that out of him. So you've had a great personal acquisition season already. It's not over. But the McKinnon, Jerick McKinnon signing, the X factor. You paid him, yeah, handsomely to be that X factor. Kyle's going to use him in a lot of creative ways. At this point, do you almost want to either a fast forward? to the season as quickly as possible or be temper expectations because your fans haven't tasted anything yeah. uh, in the in the form of disappointment for a while. Yeah, we love high expectations. We put high expectations on ourselves. One thing we don't talk a lot about is making promises on hey, we're going to we're going to this is our year, we're going to be in the playoffs. I think if we just continue to go about our work, we're better uh, we're a better football team in terms of the pieces we have. Uh, we finished strong, uh, but now we got to go back to work, form a whole new identity of this team. And I think if we just do that and go about our work, I got all the faith in our players, all the faith in our coaching staff that things are going to go well this year. If I could have told you that you would check all these boxes a year ago, as let's say we were talking at last year's meeting, yeah. and you were headed into this for the first time, would you have signed up for that in a heartbeat? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I love the progress we made, but. Um, you know, the, the other thing in this league, everybody else is getting better, too. Yeah. You know, and you look in our division, you look at what the Rams are doing. A lot of people say uh, because there's been some upheaval in Seattle that they're done. They're not done. They You're not buying that. They huh? still have Russell Wilson. They still have Bobby Wagner. There's great players on that on that football team. They're, they're a magnificently coached team. So they're going to be there. And Arizona's been a formidable team, and they're not just going away. Yeah. So. One thing we know we have to be is better in our division. We were not good in our division last year, and we, we've got to be better. Your old Super Bowl quarterback, Brad Johnson, used to tell me all the time, the train keeps moving, this league never stops. Yes. If you start slowing down, you're left behind. Yeah. With John Lynch on the Cover 2 podcast on Patriots.com. Thanks so much for the time today, John. Thank you, Don. Is there a team that has the uh, desire to see the 2018 season kick off sooner than the San Francisco 49ers? Well, number one. Great interview, by the way. That that turned out great. Thank you. He's a uh, all the right questions, and uh, he's a great speak. He really is a good chat, and obviously, he, he's a, a shade more optimistic, I imagine, than he could have been had say, "Oh, the Patriots not magically just restarted the franchise for them." Shows the respect that Belichick does have for the Shanahan family. The uh, part of me wants to, part of me loves the idea of like you know the the what ifs, like what if. You know, they had called the tuck rule a fumble, you know, where where franchises would have gone. Like, right. which John Lynch would you have been speaking to if he came in and if it was still like C.J. Beathard, you know, and they were looking to draft a quarterback and they were picking, you know, first and 33rd or second and 34th. I mean, the man literally, I mean, he was doing fine work as a general manager, but to just have your franchise changed. So dr- he was gifted a potential shutdown corner, a top five cornerback wanted to come to him. All based off of Garoppolo. So the Garoppolo effect. I never get tired of that good fellas drop. Jimmy. That was off the Lufthansa heist, right? Yeah. Uh, Just, it's, it's it's, it's almost unthinkable. But I will say, as much as you say, like, who wants to get into the 20th season more than John Lynch, Jimmy Garoppolo, and the 49ers? Things got a little interesting for them this past week because twice next year, Jimmy, who is fleet of foot and quick of arm, is going to be running for his life now that Indomitian Sioux went to the uh, Rams. Yeah, yeah, that makes true. the NFC West is now it's must the see East the and the West CTV. are the the must see TV yeah. of football next year. 
Um, it's it's good because the Sioux signing one year, fourteen million. I was able to talk to Kevin Demoff, the CEO, pre- team president of the Rams, um, in Orlando. I thought it was really interesting. He said we held firm at one year, and a lot of people had said, you know, is he going to chase the money? He's already been paid. He made a ton in Miami. Or is he going to chase the chance to win? And I think he turned down more dollars from the Jets. He went one year uh, for not bad money, but uh, one year. <laughs> it's not chicken feed he got. It, it, but it's kind of a prove it deal in that it's not long term. He can't coast. He has to play hard this mm-hmm. year if he wants to get that next big payday. Right. I applaud the Rams for holding firm with that because I think you'll get his best. He's not always the high motor that you want to see. He's phenomenally talented, but he's not always, the effort isn't always 100% consistent. And now that he's got, he can play fullback for Aaron Donald, or Aaron Donald can play fullback for him, proverbially speaking, that is going to be a wrecking ball of a defensive line. And how happy, we talked about this a little bit in the podcast beforehand, but how happy is Wade Phillips, who (laughs) just wants a defensive line that can get after it so he can put his corners on islands and say, lock it up, boys. And they got... The overhaul of the century this offseason. Peters for a song, Tlaib for a bag of balls. Sue falls out of the sky to them on a one-year deal. Aaron Donald must be licking his chops right now. I mean, you pick. You tell me. Is it Eagles-Rams or is it Vikings-Rams in the NFC Championship? Yeah, it's going to be a great great race. Demoff said when when, uh, they got Peters... He said, Wade Phillips said, I'm set. Thank you. That's all yep. I need. He says, when they got to leave, he said, unbelievable. I'll take it. I'm living right. He said, when I told him we got Sue, he went speechless, and Wade never goes speechless. So no. Now, granted, uh, people are saying, all right, well, who's playing linebackers? Ogletree gone, Quinn right. gone, uh, Tremaine Johnson gone. They lost three pretty good players. I'll take the three that they got and call it an upgrade. However, that is uh, that is really an interesting division now because if he's if John Lynch is right in Seattle, you know isn't in seven nine territory with with the remake on defense, right? Um, then you're really going to have possibly a four team battle royal. In 2015, Wade won beating the beating a, an offensive line disabled Patriots with just that same formula, a strong defensive line. You had Malik Jackson. You had. DeMarcus Ware, you had obviously Von Miller just with nothing but 99-mile-per-hour heat coming off the end, and you had uh, Derek Wolf, and then you had a great secondary. The linebackers weren't anything special in Denver. They had Brandon Marshall and Danny Trevejo. I mean, eh, it was fine. They were little, little sh- short coverage linebackers. They'll find a way to de-emphasize that portion of the field because quarterbacks are, I mean, if you get two seconds, you'll be lucky. I was going to say, you've got now the pass rush of all time, and then you've got the cornerbacks who can Shut hold, it down. hold coverage. Uh-huh. I mean, they, they in essence traded Quinn for Sue. I would do that trade yes. every day, twice on Sunday, and then try to come up with another day to pull it off. Yep. Yeah, no, it's it's it, it's a delicious situation in L.A. And they didn't even lose that much for the future, Don, so they can draft linebackers. They can they can prepare for what if Sue doesn't stick around. They can replace Sammy Watkins. They can give more weapons to Jared Goff as well. Talk, they, talk about how much has changed in a span of about six months for the 49ers. Think about a year and a half ago what we thought of the Los Angeles Rams. Like, think. Goff going was in, a punchline coming out of hard Going runs. into that last god-awful Jeff Fisher season in L.A., what did we think of the Rams as an organization? And 
fast forward now, 18 months later, and where are they now? It's Super Bowl favorites. Got their quarterback after all that we thought was going to be a bust. They've got a defensive coordinator that's probably going to go to the Hall of Fame. They've got this ridiculous, you know, fearsome foursome minus one defensive line. And that's a that's a franchise that just, again, remade itself very, very quickly, and it comes back to coaching. QB on the rise, top five running back. It's yeah. They're, they're, they are as loaded as you can get. Well, let's let's shift to the, the other major headline of the week in Orlando. Player acquisition was Odell Beckham. Does he get traded? This all started Sunday afternoon. John Mara, um, basically, I believe, was trying to show some tough love for Jink, uh, for uh, uh, Odell Beckham and said, you know, we we need him to shape up. Um, there was the social media posts recently that showed him with what appeared to be uh, marijuana at some point and then some oh, cocaine. Various, various uh, substances in a, a hotel bed. So basically I think Mara was trying to get a little tough and the next thing you know the headlines are saying that he's available in trade and then it fast forwarded to the Rams are interested then Dave Gettleman the new Giants general manager scaled it back a little bit and said you don't give up on talent. So Bottom line, are the Giants open to moving him or not? I say, bottom line, they're not. They won't. He's too good. And have you seen that Giants offense when he's not on the field? If you have any hope of Eli Manning in two more years as your starter, you're not letting Beckham walk out the door. I, 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 I can't imagine why. I, can't ima- I cannot imagine why they would deal him. He's a difference maker. He is a massive difference maker. And that's that's you know that is what you've you're got a top for. three. You stumbled into a top three wide receiver in the league. You you have somebody who can get open, who's got game changing speed. Yes, he's a head case. Yes, he's a diva. Yes, he's going to cost you a fortune when you inevitably resign him. But if you don't get a Herschel Walker Hall, if you don't get a franchise reset of a Hall for him. I mean, what what are they going to get? Two ones, maybe? They're supposedly asking two? for two ones, and I don't even think they would get that. So I don't think so either, because they're they're not dizzy, they're not dealing from a position of strength. No, they've got Sterling Shepard and as a wide receiver core, everyone and they've got a good tight end, but everyone knows they need him. Here's and where in transition to quarterback too, Don. He came out and said he he basically will not participate uh, in anything this off season. Or training camp, if he doesn't get, he won't get on the field if he doesn't have a new contract extension with the Giants. I worry that he'll mentally check out or get his hopes up that he really is going to L.A. and is going to play out there in, uh, amongst the stars. And really, l- the Giants will let this situation get a little away from them. But um, I wouldn't move him. I would. I would nip it in the bud any talk that they're going to move him. And then it's a matter of how much does he cost you. So do the Giants – all right, so if you're Gettleman now and you're kind of getting painted into a corner by your star player, do you, A, just tell him, like, shut up and play this year and then you can decide what you want to do? Do you gauge where he wants to go? Or, or C, do you just throw a contract off right him now, uh, a one that's, you know, ballpark of what he's worth, and if he says no, deal him? Well, I do think they should – I mean, he's going to be the highest paid receiver in the game at some point. I think they ought to try to make their mm-hmm. best possible offer now. Um, you obviously have – the ability for him to play his last season and then to franchise him. So you do control him for two years. And what he's worth in that franchise season is going to be what he's worth for sure. Yeah, and 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 he is whatever number he gets whenever he gets it 
it's going to make him the highest paid receiver in the and, game. And whatever team gets him is going to make half that back in the first week in jersey sales. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, I to me that was one of those classic owners meeting stories that got ahead of itself. And and Mara already skinned back on it and said, you know, he's not being shopped and he's not going anywhere. I think they were trying to, again, show a little tough love, and it, it picked up speed, as it can often do in, in, in the media market that is New York. But I don't know why they would let their biggest weapon uh, move on. You know, you're right. He's His immaturity is some problem. I don't think he's a total chucklehead, though. Mm-mm. I think some, in some ways... Um, his rep gets ahead of the reality of of how much trouble he is. I don't think he is a guy that really, really worries the GM every night when he goes to bed that the phone is going to ring. If he just hadn't taken that picture on the boat before the Green Bay game. (laughs) That was not good. (laughs) The party boat. Yeah, the party boat. Uh, Lastly, and then we're going to go to our second interview. I I ran down Mike Zimmer, uh, the Vikings head coach, for a few minutes in Orlando. Uh, We'll check in on the the level of expectations in uh, the Super Bowl or bust Minnesota Vikings with Kirk Cousins as their quarterback. Speaking of NFC teams on the rise. But speaking of quarterbacks, the other headline, Johnny Menzel back to the NFL. I tend to not let something like this story make my radar screen too, um, uh, you know, deeply until it seems real. And I don't know if him throwing at pro days, a series of pro days, including Texas A&M, really moves the needle uh, for the NFL or the CFL in this case. What's your thought? Do you do you think Johnny Manziel actually has a, a potential future back in the NFL? He'll sure. get a chance. I do. Yeah. Absolutely. Because quarterbacks... I watched the interview with him the other night on SportsCenter. He and Van Pelt did about 10 minutes together. It was a nice, long, in-depth interview. did not sound like old Johnny football at all. This sounds like somebody who's been... He spoke... There was a lot of... There was a lot of honesty. There was... It seemed to me like he, he sat, he's gone through the ringer. He's, he spoke of his support system and how he's gone to AA, how he's ha- had the right people step into his life, how his wife has changed him now, and how... He seemed like he kind of had his head on, a, like he had his head screwed on straight. And I'm, I'm buying it. He looks good. It's never been a question of the physical talent. It's just him actually being there. And he spoke to the fact that his he wasn't checked in. He just thought he could get by on talent and reputation alone. Is and his style though? Crash to earth. Is his style ever going to be a an NFL style enough? I don't know. Why not? I don't know. I mean, is, isn't he basically body type prototype from your Mayfields and your Russell Wilsons? To a degree, he's got a good. He's got a surprisingly strong arm for a kid his size. I think it still takes a, a team willing to commit their offense to exactly what what he does well. Okay, now look at this. And look at the developmental project he can be for a team. If you're thinking about drafting a quarterback, but you don't know if you can spare the pick, you could take a flyer on Manziel. He's probably willing to work for cheap, and I don't think he's short on change anyway. And look at what he can do for you from a scout quarterback position. Think about having a Johnny Manziel around. The number of times every season you play a running quarterback or you play a mobile quarterback to be able to have a Johnny Manziel who has been humbled, sit down, humble yourself, who needs to work his way back to respectability, let alone the top. That's where we're at, huh? We're talking about Johnny Manziel, scout team quarterback. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah. Well, one team that does not need Johnny Manziel is the Minnesota Vikings. Um, We're going to play Mike Zimmer's interview from the owners' meetings now. Mike Zimmer, head coach of the Minnesota Vikings. Mike, I guess, how do you temper expectations after an offseason that a lot of people uh, are obviously very excited about your work? 
Yeah, uh, well, I understand the expectation part. Uh, you know, everybody's kind of saying Super Bowl or bust, but for us, really, it's about trying to get better, trying to create some stability at the quarterback position. Um, you know, if we could start out at 13 and 3, then I'd be with them. You know, we got three games to go and let's, let's go win it. But uh, we have started 0 0, and, um, you know, every team is good in this league. If we don't prepare and do the things we're we need to do to win games, then, you know, we're going to be sitting at home next year. I thought you stood up at the Combine and you kind of told us all what was exactly on your mind. You said all your quarterbacks have question marks. You love them all, but all of them had things you had to realistically grapple with. Yeah. It wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a, a spin or a front. You took a pretty bold move in saying goodbye to those three guys, and then there was that period before you could officially lock up Kirk Cousins. Um, it had to be a little bit of a, a courageous move to do that, knowing that you didn't have anything for certain. Yeah, and, um, you know, honestly, when I said that at the Combine, I was I was trying to be positive about, you know, and it got spun that I wasn't, you know, I didn't like any of them or all that, but I liked all those guys. They, they're all good guys. And, you know, I texted, I texted uh, Case, when he signed with Denver, and I said, you know, thanks for everything you did for me and everything you've done for the organization. You know, you helped us to get to this spot, and um, you know, and, but we made and we made it, uh, and it was a little nerve wracking because we thought, okay, if we don't get Cousins, you know, uh, you know, we could lose this guy. We, could lose, we might be, and you know, they all went pretty quick. Um, but you know, we made a, made a decision organizationally that. Um, we have a chance to add some stability to this, to this uh, position. So, um, you know, we, Rick and Rob Brzezinski and those guys did whatever, whatever we had to do to, to get the job done. Tell me one thing about Kirk that you already know that you didn't know two days before you signed him. And I know you don't have a ton of contact yet, but is, is he everything you thought and more? You know, um, he's a little taller than I thought he was. <laughs> I mean, you know, because the only time I've seen him play is, uh, you know, when we played against him. And, uh, but when I went out to dinner with him that night, he was a little bit taller than what I was used to, than I, than I thought. You know, I'd heard so much of the other things, the intangibles yeah. and what kind of person he was. And, uh, none of that really surprised me. Did it speak, last question, did it speak well of him? He wanted to be in Minnesota maybe more than you wanted him to be in Minnesota. And by that, I mean he did his homework. He was looking, as his, he and his father said, for that st stability and the leadership in the organization. A lot of guys just want a different priority, and you know what that is. It's green and it spins. Um, he wanted to be a Viking. Yeah, um, that w that's important. Um, and, and he did do his research. He was a guy that that researches everything, he gets to know about everything that we do, and uh, all, you know, when he was in, when he was in uh, Minnesota for the Super Bowl, he drove to our old facility, drove to our new facility, and just to see what, he drove around, he, he rented a car and drove around uh, the area, yeah. so he wanted to find out about everything, and you know, he, he did his due diligence, and you know, that's great, and he decided to come there still. <laughs> did you catch that? I think he said... Uh, I like, he said he's taller than he than I thought he was, and then he says, I wasn't used, and he stopped. Like, basically, you just 
was referencing Case Keenum yeah. without <laughs> referencing it. But that was uh, that was a surprising answer that Kirk Cousins was taller. But um, but I too, Mike Zimmer rented a car in Minnesota and drove around. There you uh, go. Uh, so that must I mean three. that I want to go work for the Vikings. Sure. Well, it w- it was clear if you're like negative six in the early February. It was clear that Kirk oh. Cousins wanted to get to Minnesota when when the sweepstakes opened, be- because he seemed to look at it as as the safest bet. Um, another- they kind of went all in on him though, Don. Yes, they really he, did. Like yeah. he he talked briefly there about uh, the like they kind of everyone left. Yeah, they let all three of the guys walk out the door. There had to be a scary moment or two. What like- was the backup plan if Cousins yeah. just all of a sudden like took thirty five million from I don't know Arizona or, or just. Out of the blue, at the last minute, somebody swooped in and, signed, and scooped him up. Johnny Manziel. There you go. There you go, Johnny. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't Johnny know. Johnny Skull. I, I guess they could have gone uh, uh, running back to Teddy Bridgewater, but um, yeah, that that that's a team again that probably can't wait to kick it off in 2018 because Minnesota has sky high hopes. And he said, you know, he's here. He hears the Super Bowl or bust. But as long as we're not. If they started us, spotted us thirteen and three, then I'd say, yeah, three weeks to go, three games to go, let's go get it. But obviously, not the way it works. Um, kind of an interesting week, and I think now we don't we shift and start to go in total draft mode for the next. Uh, I don't know what April first is on Sunday, Four weeks. and so a little little shy of April twenty sixth. It is right. So yeah, we're, April twenty sixth. It starts uh, twenty seven days from now. Yeah, so last night it would have been four weeks yep. from last night. The first round, and I do think this is going to be a fascinating first round. One of the things I didn't get to talk about was meeting um, um, Jordan Palmer, who is one of the Carson Palmer's younger brother, right. former NFL quarterback, but who's been working with uh, Sam Darnold and Josh Allen, I want to say. And just talking with him at this meeting uh, convinced me again that this is going to be a fun first round because no one has a a great handle on how this thing is going to unfold quarterback-wise. But uh, I'm sticking with quarterbacks go one, two, three, and um, there's some people who think they could go one, two, three, four, and I'm not – I'm not totally uh, disagreeing with that. I'm not. Ca- I'm saying somewhere in the one, two, three, four, we see. I don't know if it's Saquon Barkley. It might be one of those guards. I don't think it's going to be a defensive lineman, but I think somebody's going to break up the one, two, three. Let alone the one, two, three, four. Yeah. A positional player will break up the quarterback run. Could be Bradley Chubb. Could be Saquon. Barkley. And what if? And what if? What if the Browns identify another running back? We'll say that they like as much, and somebody's desperate for a quarterback. The Browns could end up having this. I know this is crazy to say. The Browns could end up having one of the best NFL drafts, but not just their best draft. They could end up having one of the best NFL drafts in years. They may have the, they they may have it. They've made a lot of great moves. We like what they've done so far this offseason. Imagine that. You, are you Relevant saying if Browns. they get out at four and I, go down? You yeah. get the quarterback you want at one, and somebody's desperate to get in at four. Right, and that's how you go quarterbacks one, through two, one two, three, four, potentially. Right, and somebody makes a Jets-like trade and throws a couple of seconds or a second and a third at you, and then you only have to move back four spots. Right. Then you get a defensive lineman to put next to Miles Garrett, and then you can get your running back in the second round. It's a, we've heard it's a deep running back draft. This is going to be fun, Don. we got four weeks to chew on it. For Nick Stevens, I'm Don Banks. Thanks for joining us on another Cover 2 podcast with Banks and Stevens on Patriots.com. We will talk at you next week.
Thank you for downloading the Cover 2 podcast from Patriots.com. Second and goal to go from the two. Toss sweep right for James White. Cuts it under the right arm. Cuts it upfield. Driving forward. Diving to the goal line. It's still a touchdown and a title for the Patriots. I can't believe it. They have completed the greatest comeback in Super Bowl history. Log on to Patriots.com anytime for more news and more podcasts covering your favorite team and all things NFL.